Hello and welcome to SAM's podcast series, Current and Novel Approaches to Sepsis Detection in the Emergency Department. This series is sponsored in part by Beckman Coulter and B.U. Miriu. I'm Robert Ehrman. I'm an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Wayne State. I do research in cardiovascular imaging and sepsis and heart failure, and I also work for the Biostatistics and Research Design Corps at Wayne State. And I'm Mike Piscarich. I'm the Director of Research in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Henneman County Medical Center. I'm also an Associate Professor and the Vice Chair of Research at the University of Minnesota. By way of background, I have over a decade of experience conducting sepsis clinical trials, uh, and most relevant to today's discussion, lots of studies of biomarkers in patients with suspected infection, particularly surrounding lactate and lactate clearance. It's worth noting in terms of disclosures related to what we're discussing, I do consult for a company uh, called Cytovale who works in this space. Rob, I think we're going to have a conversation today about where we currently stand in terms of biomarkers for sepsis and what's clinically available in today's practice. I think the plan was to leave future directions for another episode, but I wouldn't be surprised if it sneaks in a little bit in our conversation. I guess with that, why don't you start us off and tell me a little bit about how you think about biomarkers when you're practicing clinical today. Okay. Yeah. I think this is going to be a great discussion. I think that biomarkers play a pretty big role in emergency medicine. We use the term a lot, and sometimes I think it gets used in a different context by different people or in different situations. We think about some of the biomarkers, troponin, BNP, D-dimer. And to me, one of the most sort of fundamental ways to sort of think of classifying biomarkers would be starting out in, in terms of how you use it. So is it a prognostic indicator or is it more of a diagnostic indicator? And sometimes it can be, some biomarkers can be used in different, in each role, depending on the condition. So we might think of, you know, we come and think of troponin as an indication of, you know, ACS or myocardial infarction. But if we're thinking about PE, we might use troponin or BNP in, a, in more of a prognostic way in terms of a patient who has a PE and has elevated troponin or elevated BNP. We're thinking of that more from a diagnostic standpoint as opposed to or more from a prognostic standpoint. Yeah, prognostic standpoint compared to a diagnostic standpoint. And then as it comes to sepsis, uh, I'll sort of turn it over to you unless you have other kind of thoughts about what I had said. But, you know, the big one that everybody talks about in the sepsis space would be lactate. I think lactate is a good place to kind of start this discussion because it's kind of known, it's been studied a lot. It's now part of the sepsis three definitions as... Um, diagnostic criteria for sepsis. And, you know, I think it hits on a lot of these points really, really well about diagnosis versus prognosis. I think it also relates to things like decision-making and thinking about biomarkers on a spectrum. Now, you mentioned troponin, you mentioned BNP, I think, and then D-dimer as well, you know, we all run into these situations where when these things are very, very low, they're helpful in that they're a good rule out test. And when they're very, very high, um, can be very helpful from both a diagnostic and a prognostic standpoint. And I feel like lactate's a lot like that too. I think one of the main differences with lactate is you got a really wide kind of middle range. And unfortunately, or fortunately, like a lot of patients with suspected infection and just generalized kind of critical illness 
tend to have these intermediate range lactate, and depending on how you want to define it, it's kind of between two or two and a half and four is kind of what it was classically defined as. And I don't know about you, like when I'm taking care of these patients, that's where most of them end up. What, what do you think? Yeah, for sure. And along those lines too, right? It's like the, when a patient is, you know, has septic shock and they're hypotensive and on pressors, you know, we're not really, it's clear what the patient has, right? We're not necessarily looking for the same sort of information, you know, diagnostic information in the person who clearly is, you know, really sick from sepsis versus these sort of less severe end of the spectrum patients or kind of sick. But, you know, the question that it's always hard to answer is, you know, this person looks pretty good. We know that some patients are going to deteriorate in the next, you know, 12, 24, 48 hours, but it's hard to at this point, identify who those patients are. And again, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about these sort of mid-range lactate values and how do we interpret them? How do we apply them in these patients? I mean, to some extent, people like to use lactate as a, a diagnostic marker of sepsis without really like a clear cutoff as a, as a yes, no. But, you know, like you were saying, many things can elevate your lactate. So whether or not it's a truly a diagnostic marker, I think is far from certain. Yeah. I think it's worth kind of like stepping it back a little bit. I think there's kind of two main discussions we could have. And one is about like where lactate comes from. And then another is about the strongest data I think around lactate is really prognostic. Like you look at like a lot of the big data sets, things like that, really what you know, when you look back at the original studies or a lot of the studies that have been done in this space, what you have is this heterogeneous group of patients with suspected infection because you're getting these lactates very early before you have a clear diagnosis. And then what you do is, you know, you track their lactate level and their outcomes. And oftentimes those outcomes where they're in hospital mortality, 28-day mortality, clinical deterioration. So that patient group you looked at, you know, you mentioned who some of these patients are going to deteriorate over 12, 24 hours. And in all of those groups of patients, higher lactates were associated with worse outcomes than, than lower lactates. And that's remarkably robust, remarkably consistent, but it's it's not unique to sepsis. I mean, like I said, it's really well studied in patients with suspected infection. And I think it's helpful in that group and kind of trying to identify that clinically indistinct group, but it's not just a one and done. It's only sepsis. I mean, you see this in heart failure, you see this in trauma. It's, it's kind of just a marker of generalized badness in my mind. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, right, like the million dollar question is, is there a, a threshold over which you should be more or less worried about deterioration or whether your own practice or sort of the literature that's out there? Is there a, a value that you still think has carries a lot of weight today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do like I honestly start getting pretty worried when they're up over four. Certainly anything in the six to eight range. One, my first question is, did they just have a seizure or something like that? But barring that. Anything over four, particularly if it doesn't come down significantly with fluids. And by significantly, I mean, 
you know, I know 10%'s been used in a very specific subset in the lactates trial, and, and 20% was used in another trial in Europe looking at lactate clearance. Truth be told, clinically, if I see like a 50% reduction or a decrease from abnormal to normal, meaning like less than two, less than two and a half, I feel pretty comfortable with that patient in saying they're going to do pretty well. If it's less than that, or if it was four and it's still, you know, three and a half, even three, like after a good attempt at resuscitation. And I mean, like a fluid bolus or two, you know, maybe getting like some pressors on board, something like that. And they're just not decreasing or they're remaining over four. I'm pretty worried about that patient. Gotcha. Okay. And what do you, and I think that makes sense. And, you know, the, another sort of area of difficulty, not just with lactate, but with biomarkers in general. And so I'm interested to hear what you, what you think about this would just, would be how exactly does pretest probability factor in not in the sense that obviously, you know, again, it's it's that sort of intermediate range where, you yeah. know, somebody says has like pretty good vital signs, but then they come back with a lactate that's, you know, 3.5 or, or again, this is, how do you think about applying it in someone healthy, younger person who maybe has a skin and soft tissue infection versus, uh, you know, the person, the patient that comes in from a nursing home that can't give you really much history. And so you're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a broad workup. Do you think the sort of implications and the way we should think about whether, you know, ordering or using it or interpreting it vary across this, this, that sort of spectrum? Yeah. I'm really glad you brought this up because I think that, you know, we ought to be applying this kind of medical decision-making when we look at all of our diagnostic tests and, you know, some tests have really, really good sensitivity. Some have really good specificity. This is, as we already discussed, not a diagnostic test. It's really helpful to help guide your decision-making. And I think you do have to look at that pretest probability. I think where this really hit home to me is I recently moved from practicing in Mississippi to practicing in Minnesota at Hennepin County Medical Center. And let me just provide you a little anecdote and I can kind of tell you how my thoughts about lactate have changed in those two settings relating to pretest probability. So Mississippi, not surprisingly, you know, uh, health outcomes and kind of chronic health conditions and things like that tend to be far more common. And the acuity of patients that I took care of there that were coming into the emergency department with acute infection were pretty high. And, you know, I got to a certain level of when I would see these because my pretest probability for them not doing well due to their comorbidities, they tended to be older, things like that. When I saw a lactate of three and a half or approaching four, you know, I was pretty darn worried about it. And quite frankly, a lot of those patients did very poorly as, as expected, that data were pretty robust. I go up to Hennepin County Medical Center. Minnesota is a much healthier state much lower incidence of kind of comorbidities and things like that. It's also a much younger patient population than I was taking care of in Mississippi. And there's a lot of problems with substance abuse, particularly alcoholism, that come through our emergency departments. And, you know, I mentioned understanding pathophysiology a little while ago. A lot of people who are chronic alcoholics don't eat a lot of food. They can get thiamine deficient, things like that. Thiamine is a key component of pyruvate dehydrogenase. And if you don't have enough thiamine and PDH, your lactate tends to build up. We get a lot of patients with alcoholism who have a very high lactate, who when you give them 
some thiamine and glucose. Maybe they have some alcoholic ketoacidosis going on. And then you give them some fluids, their lactate comes down really, really fast. And so I had this higher pretest probability coming in. But then after working here for a while, a lactate of 3.5 just doesn't mean the same thing in Hennepin that it did in Mississippi. And, you know, that's just one anecdote, but I think you can apply those lessons more broadly across it. Like how do things work in Detroit? How do you think about this? Yeah, it's, I had a not dissimilar experience coming here. I was, before I was in Detroit, I was in Chicago. I worked at a county hospital and it was ethnically and sort of, you know, comorbidity wise, it was a little more diverse, but I did, I had the same sort of change where, or even compared to when I was a resident where, you know, most of the lactates that were very high, it was nursing home patients who were, you know, looked pretty clearly like they were septic clinically, you know, not that I had the greatest diagnostic acumen when I was uh, a resident, you know, but here we do, we see a lot more of the like high, a lot of alcoholism burden. And so it varies a little bit. And, and, you know, sometimes it, when you're busy in emergency medicine, sometimes it, it becomes challenging to sort of recalibrate your pretest probability because right like you said seizure it's going to be really high you you get these lab values and I don't know how it's how it is at Hennepin but any lactate above 2 we get a phone call and so you're constantly getting this barrage of information and then trying to sort of sort all of that out clinically can be challenging and you know this in talking about this it makes me think about another approach at least from a trial sort of design uh, or analytic standpoint which is just sort of a bayesian approach to decision-making and data analysis. I mean, it's sort of a, I don't know, maybe a daunting term or something to think about. I mean, I think a lot of us use sort of this Bayesian approach to clinical decision-making. It's what we've been talking about, right? You have a pretest probability for some disease state, you get some more information, whether that's a history and exam or it's a lab test, and then you update your prior information with that new information, and then you have a post-test probability, and then you go on from there. And and whether your post-test probability crosses some diagnostic test threshold, like I need to get a CAT scan at this point, or my threshold is high enough that I think the, I don't know, the patient needs antibiotics or needs to be in the admitted to the ICU or get an ICU consult, stuff like that. And so it's a little bit, you know, and there's a, there is a, like a statistical, different statistical mm-hmm. approach to like analysis in trials. And, you know, I wonder some, you know, some I don't know. I guess I wonder what you think about that. And if we're, you know, it's, it's everybody, I don't know, a lot of people don't like statistics and it's a little bit more complicated, but as we start to, you know, move forward, trying to, you know, make, I don't know, make some sense of what's like a lot of, you know, murky results. Like, is this something you think that has value? Is this something that we're going to start seeing or we should be thinking about? Should we learn more about it? Yeah. I mean, for listeners, I think conceptually one emergency medicine applicable approach to this that's been really, really worked out. I mean, you work with him. He's one of my mentors, but Jeff Klein's like D-dimer work, like really clearly like lays this out of how you take a test with this kind of a lot of also muddiness and like how you can use it to apply things. And so, you know, listeners could, could read some of those articles and I think really kind of dive in. But, you know, what you're getting at is like the, the specific Bayesian analytic approaches. Um, I haven't seen that so much with biomarkers, except as we're kind of talking here with conceptually in terms of formal analyses. I will say that like there are a lot of clinical trials coming down the pipeline, some of which are out, and I think we're going to see more and more of them that don't say a treatment works or doesn't work, but they say um, they look at 
Bayesian priors and post-test probabilities, and they say, you know, based on our assumptions, you know, we think it's 97% likely that this treatment is efficacious or something like that instead of reporting p-values. And so I do think we're going to see more and more of this, how to apply it to, and and I mean, quite frankly, this is just what we do as doctors. We just don't call it that and we don't necessarily do the testing. Right. I think where Um, it's going to become really interesting, and I'm going to pick your brain about this, is like, and maybe we can save this till later, but plant a seed. Like, what do you think about the poly biomarker panels, integration, artificial intelligence, clinical decision aid type stuff? Maybe we should table that, talk about a couple more clinical biomarkers, but I'm interested in your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I don't know that those are that there's definitely interesting, interesting stuff. And I, I have some thoughts and would like to hear what you had to say too. I mean, quickly, if, if, if listeners are interested in sort of an easily readable paper that, that introduces some of these basing techniques, it was the, the, the COCA trial, um, which was, you know, JAMA, I think it was like last year, they did like a sub in the supplement is a basing analysis. They did a basing analysis with, you know, it was calcium and outcomes and cardiac arrest, but they have a great graphical depiction in the supplement that sort of walks you through like the idea of Bayesian priors. And then you update it with your current information. It gives you like a post-test distribution um, and how the post-test probability varies based on the sort of the strength of your priors that, you know, calcium was beneficial or or not. But anyway, so I would refer listeners to that because it's, it's very intuitive and easy to, to understand. I think at that point, you know, I think we've given listeners enough of the statistical ramblings of a couple of research guys. Let's get back to kind of the, the bare bones basics and like probably the biggest thing that every first year medical student learns about when they learn about infection. Like, what do you do with the CBC? What are you paying attention to on the CBC? Like, what do you actually think about white white blood cell count and sepsis? Like, how do you use this? Like, just real, real, real medicine. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny. I feel, yeah, I remember like, you know, as a med student learning that, oh, you got to look at like the white blood cell count and this and that. And then I don't know whether it's Malmatu who gets attributed to the quote, the, the, the like white blood cell count is like the last grasp of the intellectually destitute. And it's, you know, tongue in cheek, but it's hard because it's one of those things where like when it's grossly abnormal, you know, your white blood cell count is really high. It's grossly abnormal. That can sort of help you. But even like last night I was working a shift and a lady who had this a young, like pretty healthy lady had just this rip roaring cellulitis in her whole right leg to the extent that like we thought maybe she had neck fash and she didn't, but her white count was normal. And so, you know, that's, and in fact, I was working with a med student and said, Hey, this is like a good example of how it can, you know, potentially be misleading or, you know, not reassuring or that kind of stuff. Sometimes, right, like a left shift or bandemia. Again, I don't know, not every CBC that we order gets ordered is with diff. So, you know, again, whether or not those things can sort of be helpful, but I'm not sure what you think. And there's, there's some of these other things that come on the diff, like, you know, MDW, RDW. I'm not sure if there's something that you do much with or what you think of it. Yeah. You know, I agree. I see like, I see white blood cell count as, I almost think of it, it's not really the right thing, but like kind of more like a rule in test. Like if it's over 20, I'm looking pretty darn hard for infection and treating it as infection until proven otherwise. I get really, really worried about an unexpected severe leukopenia. Just it shows that their immune response is just 
totally subpar. So I get pretty worried about that. I'd say that's the one that changes my management more than anything because I go from a patient who, yeah, I'm going to treat them from infection to, oh my God, this might be really, really time sensitive and I'm going to aggressively, you know, I, I think it just ups the ante a little bit. But these are usually patients who you kind of mentioned this, you kind of already suspect infection. All that it's maybe doing is changing your acuity and how quickly you're working on them. Do you routinely get uh, like a CBC with dip? Are you looking at yeah, the... I, so, so those are two different questions. I do routinely get a CBC with diff. And this, again, might come back to a little bit to our AI discussion later. Uh, I don't always pay attention to the detail things. And maybe I should with the left shift. You know, looking from a research perspective, again, like abandemia and things like that, really bad prognostic marker. I can't say I always pay much attention to it as much as I probably should based on the data. And then you mentioned the the MDW. I haven't gotten into the routine of looking at that yet, but maybe it's worth level setting a little bit just for our listeners who aren't familiar with it and talking a little bit about what it is. Do you want to take that one or should or should I talk for a little bit? Yeah, you go ahead. All right. So yeah, so MDW is monocyte distribution with it is something that comes on at least some instruments auto diff. I don't know if it comes on all of them. So you may see it uh, just part of your clinical lab availability. It falls into a suite of different but related measurements of white blood cells that are out there. And the the basic premise of this is that in the setting of an acute infection, more so than in generalized inflammation, so this is maybe a little bit better than SIRS would be the way I would think about it, is one thing that tends to happen is your white blood cells tend to deform. So they tend to stretch out, they tend to elongate. And when that happens, the instrument detects more variation in the size of the white blood cells. So much like you have a RDW or red cell distribution with that can change when you have changes in your hemopoietic system. Uh, When you have an acute infection, same with inflammation, but I think there's some differentiation there. Your white blood cells kind of elongate a little bit. The instrument detects that and you get a higher MDW. and And so that can be a marker that there may be some kind of immune response going on. So it it gets into this, it's moving us from a raw number standpoint to more a objective measure of a functional change in what the white blood cells are doing out there. That's kind of what MDW is in a nutshell, from my understanding. I'm certainly no expert on this. Yeah, I would also say that I'm not an expert, but yes, I, I think that's a good succinct description. And, you know, like you said, it's sort of an, an indication that at the production level that there's some sort of immunological change taking place and sort of the the question then becomes exactly what is that a marker of like an increased mdw and you know i've i've read some studies where at least in terms of how it's used that it, it sort of is a standalone marker it's maybe not super useful but it's in, in kind of going back to what you're talking about in like machine learning ai approaches but it you know is used to add sort of prognostic information as in, you know, a patient who, uh, you know, if you have two 
patients that are the, the same, except one has an elevated MDW, there's some, you know, evidence that the, the patients with MDW are going to ultimately do worse. And so I don't know that this is quite ready for, you know, routine clinical use on your next shift. And this maybe is a good way to transition to some of the other stuff you were referring to. But, you know, my question is, you know, my thought is, you know, how do we start to think about incorporating whether it's single biomarkers or biomarker panels or single measures versus repeated measures, because, you know, certainly trajectory over time, like you were talking about with lactate clearance, um, someone whose lactate's going down, uh, we feel good about versus, you know, static or increasing, we actually don't feel is, you know, so good about. But again, this is one of those big moving targets. And a lot of, you know, more more data can sometimes be useful, but then, you know, there's a, a threshold at which point it becomes too overwhelming. And then you're just like, I don't know what to do with all of this stuff. So I don't know. Like, what, what do you think? Are we, yeah. are we? No, I, I, co- I completely agree. And so this is where I'm, I'm interested in the AI systems because, and I feel like when, when patients first hit the door, we get an initial assessment. Um, we get some initial labs and things like that. And I feel like we're, you know, in general, emergency physicians, at least with the critically ill, identifying the really sick patients, we're pretty good at that. I don't feel like that's where the need is. But I think you touched on two areas where information overload becomes a little bit of a problem. Uh, the first of which is you get these intermediate risk patients where, say, you have a normal white blood cell count, but their MDW is high and their lactate's 2.8. And these intermediate risk patients who have a couple comorbidities, like wading through and trying to weight that different data in your head, I think is really hard. And especially when you're talking about, you know, where I think it matters for us is dispo, right? Like, is this patient safe to go home? Can they go to the floor? Do they need an intermediate or ICU care bed? And for the very sick patients, I think we're very, very good. For the not so sick patients, I think we're very, very good. I think there may be opportunity in that middle group. And then potentially to sort through that middle group, one opportunity we might have is what direction are these things changing is. When you're only watching lactate, I think we can handle that. But when we start having multiple markers, you know, we're seeing more and more panels out there, panels of inflammatory markers, panels of post-response things that are at least pretty common in the literature. We've got metabolomics and proteomics and these multi-marker panels that come up. It gets really hard to track that, especially when you're on a busy shift taking care of, you know, you got 20 patients in your cube and uh, you're trying to track all of them and you're getting all this data deluge. I think that may be an opportunity for, for computers to really help us. But we get into this problem you mentioned earlier with you get called every time a lactate's over two. We need to have a lot smarter systems to that. That's like a dumb system, like compared to what we should be able to do. Yeah, it's challenging. And it becomes, you know, I, I you know, to me, there are sort of two facets of this and, you know, which is the sort of clinical side, like what are you going to do on your shift? And then there's the research side of it. And sometimes those two approaches, they don't seem opposed to one another, but I think kind of mentioned like metabolomics and proteomics and all of this, you know, other like high dimensional data or high dimensionality data. 
you know, it certainly is potential to be extremely overwhelming. From my standpoint, I think that there's a place for these markers, like from a research standpoint, like we should be, I think my 30,000 foot view in terms of like the lay of the land is like, we have some like good information with lactate. We have something that's, you know, sort of usable, but far from ideal. But I think we have a lot of work we can do. And I think a combination of these, you know, more easy to do or more readily available sort of biochemical techniques combined with machine learning uh, is kind of ultimately where I think we're probably going in terms of, you know, taking better care of patients. But uh, but clinically, right, it's challenging because, and that's going to be the hardest point, or hardest part, I think, is like, how do you integrate into like a, a clinical workflow? I'm not sure how we're going to integrate all of this stuff, whether it's machine learning, all these, you know, all this data into something that like a clinician is like, find useful. Use yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, just kind of wrapping up this discussion and hitting on a la- our last couple things is at what point, you know, I think what we need to be doing is we need to move from like a diagnostic prognostic standpoint to where these biomarkers may actually guide therapy, figuring out like if your inflammation is really high, do we give an anti-inflammatory and, and breaking up this heterogeneity of patients. So on the topic of inflammation, like what's your practice with Procal and CRP. Do you use them? Do you not? What settings might you use them in? The answer is easy, which is that I don't. I mean, we can't. I, I, I can. Don't. I mean, I can order them. I don't know. I, I have no idea what the time frame in which procalcitonin would return. CRP, you know, like order it sometimes for like osteo or if someone's like a septic yeah. arthritis because I know a consultant is going to say, you know, want to see that it's, you know, processing. Well, and, and like, I think trending it, like, you know, for their purposes, like having a baseline matters, but like for me, diagnostically, I'm doing the same thing. Maybe, yes, yeah, an, exception, maybe an exception, I would say maybe procalcitonin in some peds patients may have some role. That's the only place where I sometimes order a procal, but not a lot. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I know there's, I don't know, I think sort of marginal data on it's being useful, but again, like so many things there's, like you said, which I think is a, which is a really big point that, that yeah, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on. It's just sort of the, the heterogeneity that exists across the the spectrum of septic patients. And, you know, as I'm sure, you know, right, there's been dozens, hundreds of clinical trials for therapies for sepsis. And unfortunately there haven't been a lot of huge breakthroughs. And I wonder if some of that is not related to patient level heterogeneity. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I absolutely do. Like I tell people a lot, my thoughts on it are, I kind of feel like, I don't, it's not a totally apples to apples comparison, but I kind of feel like we're treating sepsis like we treated cancer at its onset is we just kind of gave like some big gun nuke chemotherapeutic to everybody and then kind of scratched our heads why it didn't really work. I kind of feel like that's our level of understanding of not understanding. We know, you know it's a great, it's a great analogy. but um, I, I think how it applies to like really targeted uh, therapies and things like that. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're starting to see some breakthroughs in that. You know, we have Described phenotypes like Chris Seymour and others, Carolyn Kelfi working in a related area with ARDS, and and we're starting to break down these heterogeneous things. Right now, they tend to be focused more on clinical presentation, 
But I think as we transition to seeing what is the underlying pathophysiology that underlies these different clinical presentations, we're going to have a much better shot at breaking these things down and and making real progress. But uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, for sure. I, I I definitely agree. And I think that's a, you know, a good, your analogy with cancer is just like, if you just like nuke every cell that's dividing, like hopefully you'll get the ones that are of interest. But, uh, you know, the, I think you're right. The, you know, phenotyping and sepsis and even endotyping is hopefully on the, on the horizon. And, and maybe to step back for listeners that might not be as sort of is familiar with this idea of heterogeneity of treatment effector, just so we're kind of all on the same page, but it's just, you know, sort of broadly speaking, it's this idea that the same treatment administered to patients that have different underlying pathophysiology comorbidities is going to have a different outcome. And the, the, the example that I use, you know, when talking about sepsis would be say, you know, you have a, a 75 year old who comes in from a nursing home, who's got a trach and a peg and who has COPD and CHF and has had an MI and has diabetes and is hypotensive because they have bacteremia, right? We give those patients pressors and antibiotics. And you compare that to, you know, a 25-year-old who stepped on a sea urchin while she was scuba diving and has, you know, like a necrotizing soft tissue infection and is, you know, hypotensive from that. And we would also give that patient, uh, you know, vasopressors and antibiotics if needed. And so, it's not a far cry to understand that like the physiology between these two patients is like markedly, markedly different. And yet we're treating them the same way. And so when you combine all of those people together in a single trial is, you know, septic or not, or septic shock or not, what happens is you dilute out the, you know, the signal. So maybe early pressors is important for the old person and it doesn't really make a difference for, uh, you know, for the young person. And so seeing within that, within that framework, at least for me, it becomes a little bit maybe more understandable why some of these bigger sepsis clinical trials haven't really borne out in in the way that we had sort of hoped. And so, um, you know, again, kind of like you said, maybe some of these automated approaches to, you know, aggregating and analyzing data is going to maybe help. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're getting close to wrapping up here. I think the last thing that I already probably know your thoughts on, but we probably ought to just explicitly mention as long as we're talking about uh, approaches to sepsis and things like that is, um, you know, we have to mention cultures, like we have to mention cultures and sepsis. So as an emergency physician, what is your approach to cultures and sepsis? I thought, may I, you know, I maybe hope we would sneak by without it, but no, I think you're right. I kind of order them like it's a blanket statement. I order them when I'm like told by my administrators or my system to order them. Even if you go back to like the early goal directed therapy um, studies, when these were like, you know, the like <laughs> maybe aging, dating myself, you know, these were like the old school, really septic patients. Like residents or trainees now are sort of, you know, shocked to learn that, um, you know, it still wasn't even the majority of patients who had positive blood cultures and these patients were like super sick. So again, are they super helpful for us? Like generally not. Do they provide some targeted therapy information like in aggregate? Probably there are certainly like, um, you know, a subset of patients, you know, if you've got like listeria, bacteremia, you know, you might want, you know, you're going to need different Infected lines. Yeah. So those, those things can be useful. Yeah. I I think that was just the one point that I think, you know, you, you mentioned, um, depending on who's listening, you go back and yeah, even when you get these super sick patients who are 
clearly dying of septic shock, actually a minority have positive blood cultures. And I think that's just an important point for everybody to understand is you can be super sick without having positive cultures. Like that's, they're two separate things. Sensitivities may matter. It may have some implications down the line in terms of therapies, particularly for endocarditis or patients with infected lines that might be on prolonged antibiotics. It has some implications for the patient in terms of their long-term care, but in terms of your ED and early hospital management, it's um, you can't rely on them really for anything. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree. I mean, you know, the obviously with you know with CSF, like if you think the patient has a CNS infection, sometimes that can be you know useful if you you know looking at a gram stain or you know looking at some mm-hmm. of the other CSF parameters, and like that's something like if you're gonna you know go after CSF, you should you know do the cultures and do do all of the things you know like I don't know wound cultures. I like I, I don't know sometimes I have a rage blackout if somebody like tells me they want to like swab a wound and and send it for culture if it's like exposed to the skin because I think that's just you know you get like ninety five percent contaminants. But, uh, you know, it kind of, again, like so many other things, I think it's hard to know who they're going to be most helpful in, right? It's not everybody and it's not nobody. Well, I think that sounds to me like a pretty decent place to wrap up. Do you want to, uh, do you have any closing words or previews for future episodes you want to touch on? Well, yeah, time went by fast. I could, you know, talk about this stuff ad infinitum. No, I appreciate your your time and, and you know, kind of getting together, getting together to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, as it as it probably came through, like I'm interested in some of the statistical aspects. Uh, so I think in a future episode, we're going to talk to a biostatistician about some of these. You know, get a little bit more in depth in, in terms of some of these different approaches, and in here, sort of again, the like a pure you know statistical approach to that. So I think that'll be interesting. The uh, the guest we're hoping to have is a is an experienced person, but can also talk very intelligently about clinical stuff, and it's digestible. So I'm really looking forward to that. How about you? Yeah, no, I uh, I look forward to that discussion. It's an exciting time. Things are moving forward. I'm really excited about this whole application of precision medicine, and uh, you know, knock on wood, we continue to better understand kind of what's going on and can lead to some targeted therapies and some real breakthroughs over the coming years. Yeah, for sure. That's like the the hope is that we're kind of putting together a lot of information. There's a lot more, you know, resources available and, you know, solid researchers uh, like yourself who are interested in this space. And so, you know, hopefully we're going to start to see, like you said, targeted therapy development, certainly hopefully within our career spans. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, Rob. You too. 